If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be considering verses 26 to 38. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. And as you arrive there, I'll ask you to follow along with me as we read together from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit of God says to the church, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray together and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You are a God who speaks, that You have spoken to us in the Scriptures, that You have revealed Yourself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God who saves We thank You, Father, that You have revealed Yourself most clearly in Your Son, Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, given to us for our salvation. We pray, Father, that as we hear this good news announced to Mary, the mother of Christ, that our hearts would have faith today and that we would believe. I pray, Father, that You would keep me from error and that You would grant Your people grace that they need to discern the truth and to hold fast to it and that You would use today, God, as a means to encourage us to continue walking in Your Word and walking in the faith once for all given to the saints. We pray this, Father, for the glory of Christ and for the good of His church. In Jesus' name, Amen. From the start, friends, I want to state very clearly to you that the main point of this passage, the primary focus, the one thing that we dare not miss today is the glory and grace of Jesus Christ who is the Son of God. It's the one thing that we must not miss. This passage is not primarily about explaining or defending the possibility of a virgin conception. As Christians, we affirm that God's Word is true in all of its parts, and we confess that God Himself is all-powerful, infinite, and almighty. So if the Word of our all-powerful God declares that a virgin gave birth to the Son of God, then that's enough to demand our faith. 
And that's enough to demand our allegiance. This passage is not primarily about defending the miraculous. Neither is this passage primarily about Mary. Some folks, like the Roman Catholic Church, for example, spend so much time talking about Mary that they end up missing the main point of the passage, which is not Mary, but Mary's Son, the Lord Jesus. It's a bit like the sermon introduction from last week. To focus on Mary would be like continuing to celebrate Christmas Eve on Christmas morning. Who does that? No one does. It's not the point. To be sure, Mary does have something to teach us as God's people, but Mary actually teaches us by telling us not to pay attention to her, but to the God whom she serves. This passage is not primarily about Mary. No, for for all of the glory and the intrigue of this familiar passage, our text is ultimately a call to worship and adore Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. This passage is primarily about Jesus. But I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to see the the Christ-centered emphasis in, in the text itself. And one way to do that is to note even the way that Luke arranges his narrative. This is really telling, friends. Even the way Luke puts these passages together is meant to exalt Jesus. You may have noticed as we read that there are a number of similarities between this week's passage and the text that we considered last week about John the Baptist. There's a number of similarities. Both pregnancies are unexpected. Both announcements are made by the angel Gabriel. Both recipients are initially afraid and ask a follow-up question. And both receive signs that confirm God's Word. There's a number of similarities between the announcement of John and the announcement of Jesus. But at the same time, there's also a number of differences, and those differences stand out most clearly. Elizabeth's pregnancy is unlikely because she is barren. But Mary's pregnancy is miraculous because she's a virgin. The one child, John, will have a prophetic role in God's plan, but the other child, Jesus, will have a royal role. John's a prophet. Jesus is the king. John will be filled with the Holy Spirit, Luke tells us in verse 15, but Jesus will be conceived by the Holy Spirit. So do you see the contrast? As great as John the Baptist is... Jesus will be far greater. And Luke arranges the narrative on purpose in this way. So that we see John and say, wow, he's great. And then we see Jesus and we say, but this child is greater. Even the way Luke puts the narrative together, our attention is brought to Jesus. It's not about the question of miracles or the possibility of the supernatural. It's not about the person of Mary. No, this passage is ultimately about the glory and grace of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. So, friends, to help us behold the glory of Jesus this morning, I would just want to very simply draw your attention to four truths from the announcement of Jesus' birth that I pray will help magnify the Savior whom God has provided. Four truths. Number one, we're going to consider the surprise of God's grace in verses 26 to 30. Number two, we're going to look at the reign of God's Son, verses 31 to 33. Number three, we'll focus on the wonder of God's sovereignty in verses 34 to 37. And finally, we'll consider the submission of God's servant in verse 38. Let's begin then in verse 26 with the surprise of God's grace. The surprise of God's grace. 
The scene opens in a very simple setting. Gabriel is once again sent from God to deliver a message. But this time, the angel goes not to the temple, like with Zechariah, but to a small Galilean village named Nazareth. Understand, friends, Nazareth sounds important to you and me because we know the story. But at this point in history, Nazareth is an out-of-the-way little town. That's why Luke tells you that it's in Galilee. Because when you hear the word Nazareth, you, Nazareth, where's Nazareth? Where's Nazareth? It's in Galilee. This would be the equivalent of today someone saying, God's going to send good news and He's sending it to Hazen, Arkansas. You'd be like, Hazen? Who goes to Hazen? Nobody goes to Hazen. Josh does to eat catfish. But nobody goes to Hazen. Right, Nazareth, it's an out-of-the-way village. This is not the place you would expect a divine messenger to be sent and especially considering the news that Gabriel's going to announce, you would think that Jerusalem would be the destination. Or maybe God would send Gabriel to Rome. Why not Rome? But he sends him to Nazareth. Jerusalem's not the destination because that's not the way God's kingdom works. God's king is not looking for a platform. He's not chasing headlines. No, it's the opposite entirely. The good news of the king's birth begins in a very humble way, in an out-of-the-way town. It's actually an anticipation of Jesus' entire life, isn't it? Jesus doesn't start with the powerful, but with the weak. He doesn't come to heal the healthy, but the sick. And He doesn't find a home among the significant, but from among the lowly. So right from the start, we're surprised. Gabriel comes not to the capital, but to a humble little town, Nazareth, of all places. The surprise continues in verse 27 when we learn the recipient of Gabriel's message. It's a young woman who's soon to be married to a descendant of David named Joseph. It's perhaps purposeful that we learn the woman's circumstances before we learn her name. Luke tells us she's a virgin. That is, her marriage to Joseph has not been uh, consummated. The two are bound to one another by Jewish law, but they're not yet living together as husband and wife. And only after we learn all of that do we learn her name, Mary. Again, there's a surprising simplicity to this encounter. We haven't heard of Mary before this point. And there's nothing in the Bible that causes her to stand out before verse 27. It's not like we meet her in prayer. We don't meet her in worship. We don't meet her in the process of fulfilling a vow. None of that. Instead, we just meet Mary in the midst of an everyday life. She's an everyday Israelite young woman going about her time, likely preparing for marriage. You see, just like the hometown of Nazareth, there's a surprising simplicity at work as we meet Mary. And all of this only prepares us for the most surprising thing of all, the interruption of all that simplicity with the grace of God. Notice verse 28, where Gabriel greets Mary. And Gabriel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Friends, Gabriel's first words to Mary are a declaration of grace. He calls her favored one. And the point is that Mary is the recipient of God's grace. And to be really clear on this point, friends, she's the recipient of God's grace. When the angel says, greetings, favored one, he is not saying that she already possessed the favor that drew God's attention. And he's not saying that she now has the favor that she will bestow on other people. No, Luke's point is that before the angel came, Mary was not the favored one, but then when she comes, she's the favored one because God gives her grace. 
She's the recipient of grace. At his own initiative, God has visited this everyday young woman in this simple little town. Why not Mary and some other woman? Because God didn't choose that. That's why. You see, the entire thrust of the opening scene is to highlight this point, brothers and sisters. It's God's grace that initiates this moment. It's God's grace that begins the good news that follows. But Mary, as you might expect, is troubled. Notice verse 29. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Again, there's a note of humility here. Mary is perplexed about the greeting. She also might be a little afraid of of the angel, but it's the greeting that troubles her. What does this mean? Why such an exalted greeting for her, a, a young woman in Nazareth of all places? She's troubled. So in verse 30, Gabriel reassures her And again, the emphasis is on the grace of God. Verse 30, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Friends, the word for favor there is simply the Bible's word for grace. Gabriel's answer highlights God's gracious choice of Mary to be the mother of the Savior. Mary has not earned this privilege, and she did not first move towards God. It was God who chose Mary. It was God who initiated, who moved towards her. So if Mary wants to understand the meaning of the angel's message, then she needs to look no farther than the unmerited grace of God. Now clearly, friends, Mary stands in a unique position at this point. This is a one-time occurrence in redemptive history. Nobody else is getting this message from Gabriel. Nobody else is receiving this precise expression of grace. In that sense, Mary is unique. And yet, in another sense, Mary is not unique. She's a reminder that all of God's people live by grace and by grace alone. Mary did not move towards God. He moved towards her. He bestowed grace on her. He selected her for His purposes. And so it is with everyone who knows God through Jesus Christ. We are not a self-made people. We did not first move towards God. It was God who revealed Himself to us. And He did so by grace. So if you're sitting here thinking, why Mary and not someone else? Friends, that's the same question you can ask about your own salvation. Why me and not someone else? And the answer is the same. The grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we hear the angel greet Mary, we're reminded of what we have also received from God. We have received grace. Nothing but grace. And that truth, friends, should renew our hearts in worship. It's the surprise of God's grace. The second truth begins in verse 31, where we see the reign of God's Son. The reign of God's Son. After greeting Mary, Gabriel delivers his message. Mary will have a son, though as the announcement makes clear, this is no ordinary son. Notice Verse 31 through the first part of 32. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. So right away, friends, there are a number of points that should get our attention about this child. First of all, we should note the child's mission. Just as with John the Baptist, the angel instructs Mary to give her son a specific name, Jesus or the Old Testament name Joshua. 
Jesus is His name. Again, this is where familiarity might hurt us. We just breeze past the name because we know the story. But that name, friends, is significant. The name Jesus means God saves. And that's what the child comes to do. He is the Savior of God's people. His mission is salvation. But the significance goes deeper when we note the child's nature. Gabriel says the child will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Friends, that name for God, the Most High, that name is important. This was the name used for God in the Old Testament to communicate God's uniqueness or His power and even His exclusivity of God. If you were here a few weeks ago when Greg preached from Psalm 91, you got a good feel for what the name Most High means. It's a name of God's exclusive glory. There is no one else on the earth like the Most High. He alone is God. He alone reigns over the earth. All the nations belong to Him, for He's the one true and living God. And this one true and living God does not share His glory with anyone else. He's only God. And no one else can partake of who He is. That's what the name means. It's a declaration of God's uniqueness. So, when Gabriel says that Mary's child will be called the Son of the Most High, he's giving us a hint that this child's nature will be unique. This child will share in the glory of God. The very same glory that God Himself declared that He would not give to another. So if God the Most High does not share His glory, and yet Mary's son will be called the Son of the Most High, what must that mean for this child? Now, it's just a hint at this point, but it means that this child will be God Himself. In fact, if you peek ahead, I know we don't normally do this, but if you peek ahead to verse 76 in chapter 1, you can see Luke's point just a little bit better. Verse 76 is referring to John the Baptist, and it also uses the title Most High to describe God. But notice John's relationship to the Most High. Verse 76, who is John? He is the prophet of the Most High. That is, He proclaims the truth about who God is. But who is Jesus? Verse 32, He's the Son of the Most High. He doesn't merely proclaim the truth about who God is. He is the truth about who God is in Himself by nature. So again, it's only a hint. There's more that we got to say about Jesus in just a minute. But even so, it's enough to clue us in that this child will have a unique connection with the Most High God. It's the final point, though, brothers and sisters, that brings all the significance together. Notice the end of verse 32 and into verse 33 where Gabriel tells us the child's position. First his mission, then his nature, now his position. End of verse 32. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, as soon as you hear the name David, your mind should go back to the Old Testament. And specifically to one of the more important passages in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7. You may remember that text from our sermon series in Samuel. And if you do, you should come tell me because that would encourage me that you remembered it. 2 Samuel 7. It's where God promised that one of David's sons would reign on David's throne forever. It's a promise of an unending dynasty that God gave to David. But God also promised David, that this son would have a unique relationship with God Himself. God would be to him a father, and the king, David's son, would be to God a son. A unique relationship. Unending dynasty and a unique relationship. And that relationship would last forever. The promised king would reign forever and he would lead his people to know God forever. That's 2 Samuel 7. 
One of the most important passages in the whole Bible. And incredibly, what Gabriel is saying here in verse 32 in Luke chapter 1 is that God is now fulfilling that promise and He will do so through Mary's Son, Jesus. Mary's Son will be the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. Friends, in the scope of redemptive history, this is the best news that anyone has ever been told. Ever. Mary will give birth to God's King who will establish God's kingdom. And through that kingdom, God will bring His salvation to His people so that they will know Him forever and be redeemed forever with no end. God's King, God's kingdom, God's salvation, God's people, all of that coming together in Mary's Son. This is the child's position. He'll be the king on David's throne. In other words, friends, Mary will give birth to the Messiah. That's what Gabriel is saying. She'll give birth to the Messiah, to the Christ. Now, there's still more that we need to notice about this son, Jesus. But before we move on, I want to stop here for just a minute and encourage us to think about what it means that Jesus is king. Verse 32, He's going to be the king on David's throne. So, we need to think for just a minute about what it means that Jesus is king. As Americans, we don't live under a monarchy. That's what we're going to celebrate next week, that we don't live under a monarchy. And there's very few monarchies left in the world. So, perhaps we should remind ourselves that a king, in the truest sense, has absolute authority, doesn't he? A king has absolute authority. A king does not set up a town hall style government where you get to decide whether or not you want to do what the king says. No, what the king says goes. His word is law. He rules without question. A king both deserves and demands allegiance. And you either bow to him in reverence or you bow under the weight of his judgment. Those are the only options before a king. Either the submission of allegiance or the submission of judgment. There's no third way when it comes to a king. And so, Gabriel's announcement here in verse 32 that Jesus is king, friends, that, act, that should actually remind us that there's no third way for you to live in this world. There's no, there's no third way. You can either submit your life to Jesus Christ and find joy and life everlasting in Him, or you can oppose King Jesus until the last day when He breaks you under His judgment. That's it. Those are the only options. Everybody is bowing before King Jesus. Every single person who's ever lived. It's only a question of whether or not you bow to Him today in faith leading to salvation or whether you bow on the last day in judgment leading to destruction. Those are the only options. And so, friends, I would urge you this morning to bow before King Jesus in faith so that you will be saved. God's Word actually says in the Old Testament and then again in the New Testament that today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Not tomorrow. You're not promised tomorrow. Today. Bow before King Jesus today. The Gospel of Jesus Christ is not simply one way for us to live in the world. The Gospel is the way to live and to be saved and to know God. Jesus is the King and He is King alone. And He does not share His glory with another. 
Only Jesus possesses the glory of God in Himself. Only Jesus lived a sinless, holy life before God. Only Jesus took the full force of God's judgment at the cross and then rose again on the third day. Only Jesus lives right now in God's presence as the Savior. Only Jesus can save you. There's no third way with King Jesus. It's bow now and be saved, or bow on the last day and be condemned. And so if you don't know Christ this morning, God's Word is calling you here in Luke chapter 1 to submit your life to this King. There's no other way. There's no other way. The reign of God's Son will never end. This is the King who will reign forever and ever without end. Amen. And God is calling you now through His Word to submit to this Son. The reign of God's King will never end. And I pray that each of us would respond to what God has spoken here in faith. That's number two, the reign of God's Son. The third truth of the text continues to unfold for us the significance of this child. And beginning in verse 34, we see the wonder of God's sovereignty. The wonder of God's sovereignty. After hearing the angel's announcement, Mary responds with a question. Notice again verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? So Mary expects the pregnancy to begin immediately. And since she asks such a specific, immediate question, she clearly does not expect for the pregnancy to occur in the natural way. She, does not, she clearly does not expect Joseph to be the father a few months down the road. So, how will this happen, she asks. She wants to know, how is this going to happen? And we should understand at this point that Mary's question is different from Zechariah's question that we talked about last week. Do you remember that? Gabriel said to Zechariah, your wife's going to have a son. And Zechariah said, how can I know that? He wanted confirmation. He wanted something more than God's Word. Mary's question is different. She's not asking for confirmation, but for explanation. It's a natural question, in other words, and one that is seeking understanding. She wants to know, how is this going to be possible? And in verse 35, Gabriel gives her that explanation. And it highlights for us what is the most profound and important and glorious miracle in all of the Bible. Notice again verse 35. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Friends, throughout the Old Testament, the Spirit of God has the power to give life. You think about Genesis chapter 1, how the Spirit of God is hovering there over the face of the waters. And it's God the Father through His Son with the power of the Holy Spirit that brings life out of that shapeless void of the creation. The Spirit of God throughout the Old Testament has the power to give life. And that's what's going to occur with Mary. The Holy Spirit will overshadow her, Gabriel says. Again, Think about the Old Testament tabernacle when the glory of God would come down in the cloud. Do you remember? And it would envelop the tabernacle and it signified that the presence and the power of God was there. That's what Gabriel says will happen with Mary. The Holy Spirit will overshadow her, envelop her with the power and presence of God so that conceived in her womb is this Son. Is this miraculous? Yes, absolutely. And that's actually the point, brothers and sisters. It is miraculous. God intends for you to read this 
and to be awed by the mystery of the moment. On some level, this should defy your comprehension. Think about it, friends. If the almighty, infinite God is truly to come and dwell with His people, shouldn't we expect an element of mystery? Shouldn't we expect a depth of wonder that leaves our mouths gaping and our minds astonished? Isn't that what we would expect to find? Listen to me, friends. A God who is completely comprehensible is not a God worth worshiping. A God whose ways always match your level of understanding is a rather small God. So we should expect that this would be coming to us in some element of mystery that defies our minds. Dismissing this moment simply because it is miraculous is rather small-minded. We should instead stand amazed that God would reveal Himself in and through our humanity. The mystery of it is part of the point. How did it happen? How did all the biology work? I don't know. God's Word didn't tell us. Just worship Him for what He's done. The mystery is part of the point. It should lead us to worship. But perhaps more than the mystery, we should be awed by the glory of this moment. Notice the end of verse 35. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Friends, this is a rather stunning statement that reveals once again the uniqueness of Christ. Because Jesus will be conceived by a direct action of the Holy Spirit, He will not have the sin nature that every person born since Adam has brought into this world. This is not a son of Adam, in other words. In fact, Luke aims to make this very clear to you in how he describes it. The Holy Spirit will overshadow Mary so that the child to be born will be called holy. Holiness begets holiness. This son is not a descendant of Adam. He's actually a second Adam. The first Adam created by a direct act of God. The second Adam created by a direct act of God. God is doing something new with this Son. He does not carry the curse of sin in His body. This child is the Son of God. And that means, friends, that this child conceived in Mary's womb is able to save God's people once and for all. Please don't miss this part, brothers and sisters. This, this is the key. Right here from the beginning of the Gospel account, we see the glory of Christ's person leading to the glory of His work. Who He is and what He has come to do. He is both God and man together. Sometimes you'll hear people say that it wasn't until later in history that the church, the early church made up this idea that Jesus was fully God and fully man that's not true. It's right here in this one chapter. If all we had was this chapter, we have enough to say that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Just look, just look there with me. He's truly human, verse 31, conceived in Mary's womb. He's truly human. And he is fully God, verse 35, conceived by the Holy Spirit, the very Son of God himself, without beginning or end. Infinite, almighty God, truly and fully human, together in one person. Friends, our salvation depends on both of those things being true. In order for us to be saved, we need someone who can stand in our place. Someone who can represent us before God. And as one who is truly human, Jesus meets that need. 
He's able to represent us before God because He's like us in every way, yet without sin. But at the same time, in order for us to be saved, we also need someone who can bring us to God. Someone who is utterly righteous, completely holy, and entirely pure. And as one who is fully God, Jesus meets that need. He is able to bring us to God because He is Himself God in the flesh. Our salvation depends on both of those things being true. You lose either one of them and no one is saved. Friends, this is the wonder of wonders. This is the pinnacle of all glory. If you're not a Christian today, and you're saying, I, I want to believe the Bible, but I want to make sure that the most important question gets answered in my mind before I believe, friend, it's this question. Jesus is both God and man. Do you believe in Him? This is the wonder of wonders. This is the pinnacle of all glory. Conceived in Mary's womb so that He is truly human, but conceived by the Holy Spirit so that He is fully God. Jesus is God and man together forever for us and our salvation. I'm just letting it sink in. Of course, our minds perhaps instantly ask, how can this be? How is this possible? It sounds impossible. This is good news that's perhaps maybe too wonderful. It's, it's so staggering, you're left asking, how, how can this be? God, though, anticipates our question. And through Gabriel in verse 36, we see some encouragement that confirms God's Word. Look at verse 36. And behold... Your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. This is the kindness of God, friends, that He would encourage Mary's heart and through this encouragement, help us as well. God tells Mary of Elizabeth's unlikely pregnancy and He's making an argument from the lesser to the greater. Elizabeth's pregnancy is unlikely. And if God is able to do such an unlikely thing, then surely He can also do such a miraculous thing. That's what the angel is telling her. In fact, that, that's the lesson that Gabriel leaves with Mary. Notice the final words, verse 37. Here's the truth that stands behind all that has happened. Here's the reason why such a wonderful thing can come to pass. Verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. From the human perspective, what Gabriel has announced is crazy. That's the technical theological term. It's crazy. Virgins don't have children. It's impossible. But that's just it. God is not bound by the human perspective. God does the impossible. His sovereign power enables Him to accomplish all that He is determined to do. That's the wonder behind the wonder. What's unfolding here in Luke 1 is not anything the human mind could conceive or carry out. This is undoubtedly the work of a sovereign God who's determined to save His people. And that, that work is, is wonderful. And so what does this mean for us as the people of God? What should be our response to something so glorious? Well, that's where the fourth truth comes in. And it's also where Mary becomes an example for us. In verse 38, and we'll close with this, we see the submission of God's servant. We just saw the wonder of God's sovereignty. Now we see the submission of God's servant. Look again at verse 38 and notice the humility of Mary's response. Verse 38, And Mary said, Behold, 
I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Friends, you'll look throughout the Bible and not find many clearer pictures of what it means to trust the Lord than verse 38. Instead of clamoring for more insight, Mary submits herself to God. She entrusts herself to God, to His Word and to His care. Understand, this is a bold step of faith on Mary's part. Think about it. Mary submits her understanding to God and to His Word. She still doesn't know how this is going to work. She still hasn't gotten the answer that puts all the dots together. It's not clear where things are going to go from this point, and yet Mary believes. Not on the basis of what she understands, but on the basis of what God has said in His Word. She doesn't know where this is going, but in some sense that doesn't matter. Mary entrusts her situation to the Lord. She submits her understanding to God's understanding, trusting that His ways are better. But there's more. Mary also submits her life to God. Not just her understanding, but her life. Remember, friends, again, this is where maybe we know the story perhaps too well. Remember, Mary is betrothed to Joseph at this point. She's about to get married And now she has to go and tell her husband-to-be that she's pregnant and that the child was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine how that conversation was playing out in her head? It doesn't play out in any good ways. She would have been terrified. And who would blame her? Remember, Mary doesn't know yet that God has also sent an angel to Joseph. God's gone ahead of her. He's prepared the way. But she doesn't know that yet. All she knows is, I've got to go tell my husband-to-be that I'm pregnant and that the baby is conceived by the Holy Spirit. What's going to happen to her? Will Joseph still want to marry her? What about her future? You see, it's terrifying. And yet, what does Mary do? She submits her life to God and to His Word. She submits her life to God and to His Word. She cannot see how this will work out, but she doesn't need to see all the way to the end. She has God's Word. And listen to me, friends. God's Word is enough. God's Word is enough for you to believe. In fact, God's Word is enough for her to bear whatever cost there will be in following the Lord. She doesn't know. There's all sorts of possibilities out there in front of her. And God's Word is enough. Friends, this is a, this is a picture of true faith and submission to God. It's banking everything on God and on His Word. Everything. From our understanding to the future to our very lives... Faith calls us to submit ourselves to God and believe that He's always faithful to do what He said. It doesn't get all the questions answered, but it does bank everything on God's Word. And so I just want to end by asking you, is that how you're living today? Are you banking everything on who God is and what He's said in His Word? Are you submitting everything to what God has said is true? Your understanding of the situation? The requests that you've made that haven't been answered? Your future, your life, God's Word is enough. Are you submitting your life and your everything to what God has said? It's enough to sustain your faith. That's where Luke and Mary leave us today. With this picture of faith that rests on the God who's able to do the impossible. And you know what? I'm encouraged by this, friends. Because I leave this text and I recognize that walking by faith doesn't mean that I have to put all the pieces together or connect all the dots or understand everything or make sense of all that's happening or even be able to answer that pernicious question, why? But walking by faith does mean I can take God at His Word and that there'll be enough grace for today. I hope that encourages you to trust and to believe. And I hope that God would then use you 
to encourage others as well. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we need, we need You today. We have seen even in this text that all that comes our way as the people of God owes to Your grace. And so, after having received so much, what do we do? We lift up the cup of salvation and we ask You to fill it again by grace. Would You help us, God, to hold fast to what You have said? Would You help us to remember and to believe that Your Word is enough for us to walk by faith that in giving us Your Word, You have given us the promise of Yourself. Help us, Father, to trust and to believe. Help us to trust and to obey where You have called us. And God, we do rejoice that You would have seen fit in Your wisdom and in Your time to give us Your Son, born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, fully God, fully man, forever, for us and for our salvation. Father, please help us to trust Him and please help us to use our lives to make much of Him so that many can also join in saying that this is the wonder of wonders and the pinnacle of glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.